Sabrina Pace Humphreys is an ultra runner, a businesswoman, a mum of four, and a gran of two. And she is quite clear on which of these is the greatest challenge. Sabrina and I talked about being a teenage mum, taking up running to lose weight after having a baby, and training for the world's toughest race. We discussed the whiteness of the running community, enduring rural racism, and the education, knowledge and skills needed to make the outdoor community a more welcoming and equal place. Today's episode of Living Adventurously is sponsored by the Outdoor Swimming Society. The Outdoor Swimming Society, OSS, provides a space within which a community of independent spirits can share the joy and adventure of swimming outdoors. It was established in 2006 to a pioneer outdoor swimming in rivers, lakes, lidos and seas. And since it was founded, the OSS has spearheaded significant cultural change in the way outdoor swimming is viewed and the number of people who take part in it. Full of doers, thinkers and creatives, the OSS has had a direct impact on individuals' swimming habits, inland access, social swimming networks and open water events, all of which has contributed to the Lido revival and the current art, science and culture revival around swimming. The OSS prides itself on originality, a kind heart and free spirit, Staying true to their renegade and maverick roots, they have chosen to remain a volunteer-run society that does not charge for membership. So, visit www.outdoorswimmingsociety.com and become a member. You can find wild swimming spots close to where you live and perhaps challenge yourself to join one of their adventure swims such as the Hurley-Burley in Wales, the Bantham Swoosh in Devon or the famous Dart 10k swim. You're a mum of four, you're Thanks. a grand to two, you're an ultra runner, and you are a public yeah. speaker and a businesswoman. Yeah. Which of these I is am. the hardest challenge? Yeah. Being a mother of four. A mother of four is probably the hardest challenge. It's It challenges me physically, it challenges me mentally, it keeps me on my toes. No one day is ever the same. It doesn't get easier as they get older. It's a different kind of hard work. Um, yeah, it keeps me keep yeah, it keeps me thinking, keeps me consistent, it keeps me honest. <laughs> so, do, do those um, many, many, many sleepless nights and stresses of being a mum um, help put things into perspective when you're trying to claw your way through the misery sections of an ultra marathon? Does it does it help put things in perspective? does you know I think because I think being a mother is being a mother is the the most under under paid under least respected job like it's it you 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 practice all of those things that you practice in an ultra marathon when you're going through being a mother sleeplessness not eating not being able to drink when you want to the physical ongoing slog relentless forward motion the mental draining effects of one child, two children, three children, four children. 
I think this is why women do so much, you know, are absolutely smashing men in ultra marathons. You know, look at Jasmine, Jasmine Paris last year in the spine. You know, you, you look at, you know, Sabrina Vergi and, uh, you know, you... We are, yeah, we are made to be ultramarathoners just through the, the journey of being mothers. You're built to suffer and built to endure and persevere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I became a mother when I was, I was pregnant at 17. I had my first baby at 18, uh, you know, and yeah, it, it set me up to ultimately within my 40s really kind of become a, a kind of person that likes running long, likes going into those dark places, um, because I know that I can ultimately get myself out the other end of it. And, and ultimately, that is that is the journey of motherhood. So what, what are some of the good aspects of being a teenage mother? Energy. You've got a lot of energy. Um, I think that I became a teenage mother and none of my friends were mothers. Obviously we were, you know, we were, we were all young. So there wasn't a, uh, a, a way to do things. So I felt no pressure that my friends were doing this, it this way with their babies. So therefore I should do it this way. None of my friends had babies. So I was the one that was making the mistakes, getting it wrong, learning from them, applying, et cetera, et cetera. So there was no, oh, you know, there was no, com- that comparison stuff it just wasn't there because none of my friends had children and and that was really good for me mentally it was really good for me I've, I've experienced more of that being an older mother than I ever did being a younger mother um and I think you know you make your own way I think you know when I became a mother young I I couldn't do the things that my friends were doing I wasn't going to festivals I wasn't going on foreign holidays you know I had to um not pursue the the you know the the college stroke university path that I was initially on but I knew that one day I would be able to pursue those professional and physical kind of goals that I had it just wasn't going to happen in the normal way that it is supposed to happen or as they used to say it was supposed to happen so how how then do you um because I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of my life is supposed to go in this direction because this is what people like me do with their life and then Mm -hmm. when your life doesn't go down that direction there's so many good options and bad options and so many millions of forks in the road but how did you deal with that massive swerve in your imagined trajectory of your life I think that I'm a true believer, and even then I was, um, that everything happens for a reason. You know, I'm I'm a firm believer that you make a decision and 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 you know, your your life, as you say, you know, fork in the road, you make a decision and it goes down one path, maybe not the path that you envisaged it to go down. But I knew that I wanted my baby, you know, and I knew that I think I felt a absolute connection that could not be could not be um yeah could could not I I couldn't have made any other decision so therefore you know I had a lot of people telling me that you know you're young you've got your whole life ahead of you all of those things that you know you're told when you're a young parent but I knew that I knew that I had it inside me from from the childhood and from the experiences that I'd I'd had uh with you know 
you know, dealing with racism when I was growing up, that, um, that, you know, I was going to make something of my life. And it did not matter whether I had a baby young or not, that I was still determined to make a difference. That's a good, strong answer. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, strong answer. I'm conscious now. So I always have this thing when I, I carefully get my clipboard out to make myself feel very important. And then I spend about 10 minutes asking questions that I haven't even put on my sheet. Um, <laughs> so I'm now going to say, question one, <laughs> I want to start. So this is what I always do. Yeah, I waffle yeah. away and then and we run out of time. So um, you got... Um, you got it, and actually, this is supposed to be a podcast about running rather than uh, parenthood. But perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that's more more interesting than running. Anyway, um, you you didn't get into running as a sport. You weren't really a runner as a kid. You were a bit of a late developer to the sport, a bit of a late discoverer to the sport. So, what prompted you to start running? What prompted me to start running was that after the birth of my fourth child, I put on about five stone. I used my pregnancies and I'll admit it and many women will have experienced the same. I use my pregnancies as a reason to eat. I could <laughs> eat whatever I wanted, however much I wanted. That was my thing. Like as soon as I was pregnant, I was like, right, the diet's out the window. I am going to eat whatever I want and I have a sweet tooth. So, I so you, got, on, you, got the, you got the pregnancy test and half a dozen cream eggs at the same yeah, trip to boot. Yeah, like Tunnock's tea cakes, like by the dozen. I <laughs> love them. They love me. They love my thighs and my butt, my hips. So I came out of I came out of being pregnant with my fourth child, five stone overweight. And what's five what's five stone in modern money? Ish. Oh my god, in terms of pounds. No, kilos. Oh, kilos. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there's 2.2 kilos. I don't know. Okay. A, a lot. Let's imagine a lot. what? A sack of potatoes. Like loads of sacks of potatoes. <laughs> okay. So, so you had loads of sacks of potatoes and you yeah. were, you, I read, these are your words. You said you're so ashamed of your body that you didn't dare go to the gym. So oh. do you think, is this an advantage of running then? over gyms I think that in those early days I think that certainly the 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 shame that I felt in terms of I mean I I've had my body had produced a baby let's not you know any woman that can grow and produce a healthy baby is like an absolute like bow down it wasn't it wasn't that I didn't love the what my body had done it's that I I was at a stage where it, it hurt to carry that much weight around post-baby. I suffered with a condition with three of my children called SPD, symphysis pubis disorder, which basically meant that my pubic bones moved ever so slightly every time I walked because the ligamenture basically had slapped so much that it was incredibly painful to move. So, and carrying around five extra stone just made the problem so much worse. So I just, I wanted to do something about it. And I'd read that running was the exercise that burnt the most calories per mile or per 10 minutes than anything else. Um, and I didn't want to go to the gym. I did not want to go to a gym and see people and have people see me and sweat and puff and pant. And I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, you know what? I can go along my canal towpath and I can try and run there. And that's how I started my journey in running. It was purely to shift weight. So you, you start putting on weight, wait, 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 wait. And at some point in that 
progression, you must have started to think, well, I want to do something about this. But it's not, it's obviously a slow process to both put on weight and decide you want to change. So what was it that got you out the door for your first run? Was there, was there a, a decisive moment that got you committed to getting out the door? I think it was, I think the decisive moment was um, having a newborn baby and a three-year-old toddler that I, um, and at that time I was running, I literally had one week maternity leave and I had to go back to working full time. So I was running a, a, a successful PR and marketing business and I just could not move my body quick enough in order to cope with the demands of everyday life because I was carrying around all of this weight. I was out of breath. I did not feel fit. I didn't feel that I was able to function the way that I needed to carrying that weight. And I think it was probably one day where I was trying to get up the stairs, holding a newborn, going after my three-year-old with my phone in my hand because I was answering emails. And I was like, I need to be more mobile. And the thing that is holding me back is the fact that I'm still five stone overweight. So how far did you manage on your first run? <laughs> I did half a mile. You looked walk- out the window then as though you could see the, yeah. see how far you got. <laughs> yeah, literally, because I can remember coming around the corner and my friend, my male friend, called me and said, Sabrina, I've just gone past you in the car and it looks like you're breathing out of your excuse my French arse like I was bent over I was red as a beetroot I think I'd done one minute on one minute off walk jog and I thought my whole world was like I was like there is no way I am going to be able to do that again within the next week like I was beat and that's why I was looking out the window because it was on that corner that I was bent over double like you know it was yeah it was it was not pretty your your Cotswold accent is brilliant for the word <laughs> arse I mean, that's the best word that's the best version of arse I've ever heard I think <laughs> okay so I'm going to uh, I'm going to fast forward a bit now because I'm uh, still only asked you about two of my questions so you lost a load of weight yeah you you fell in love with running you started yeah. to run for longer distances up 10k did a marathon um what what got you into because most people i'd say actually pretty much every person who goes through your process of discovering running does it on the roads in the yeah. early days so what what got you into off-road running well, I decided to give up drinking alcohol about five years ago. Um, completely reason, give up? Completely, like completely give up because I have a, and I'm beyond, I have a very addictive personality. And says, I, says the ultra runner. <laughs> and I just, I just found that it, it wasn't, Sabrina and alcohol just was not a good mix, really. And I just took a decision um, that, I needed to stop. And my 40th birthday was on the horizon. So I was like, well, I'm not going to have a massive party. I wanted to do something for my 40th birthday that was a real achievement, that was something totally outside my comfort zone, that was challenging physically, mentally, in terrain that was unknown. I wanted an adventure. I wanted to challenge myself. Um, so I decided to sign up for the Marathon Day Saab. 
And uh, that's what got me into trail running because before then, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd done some trail running, but I preferred the road because the road, you kind of, you're not going to fall over roots and stones and, you know, and and then when I decided that I was going to give the Marathon Day Saba try, I was like, well, I need to properly get into trail running and understand what it is to run on terrain, which is really foreign to me from going from roads. Um, because all of my training for the MDS was on terrain, which was not road. Um, because the Sahara Desert is not road. <laughs> okay, if, if you'll forgive me for um, being so bold, this sounds like a ridiculous thought process it for is. you to, uh, yeah, to, to decide to get into trail running by entering what describes itself as the toughest race, race on, Earth. on the planet. So when you started, how did, well, first of all, um, did how did you find out about the MDS? Is there an interesting story to that or, or do you just hear about no, it? There is, the no, there is an interesting okay. story. So I had heard about this toughest foot race on Earth, this race in the Sahara Desert in which you had to carry all of your own supplies, clothes, medical supplies, you were in a tent. And I, so I'd heard on the grapevine about this. And then a friend had said, oh, there's this mental documentary that's on the Discovery Channel. And it's James Cracknell who is, who's done this, this Marathon Day Saab. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, I've I heard about that. And I can remember watching it. And my mouth was open all the way through it, you know, because... He it's such a great account of a man, an Olympian, you know, that is pushing the boundaries of what he's physically and mentally capable of. And he's being sick and he's hallucinating. And and I was like, that is horrendous. That looks horrendous. And then literally the next day I was like, that's the challenge that 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 I have to find out how I go about getting an entry to that race. So that's nice. what I did. <laughs> yeah. there's a, I don't know if you know, there's an ultra runner, American guy called Dean Carnassus. Yes. And he he had a nice similar story, but for him it was his 30th birthday party. He went out for his 30th and he was feeling a bit empty on life. And he, so he got absolutely smashed. And then late that night in the bar, he just thought, this isn't what I want in life. I'm 30 now. I'm going to run 30 miles. So he ran 30 miles through the night wearing his sort of nightclub outfit and gear. No, I didn't uh, know got, he did that. Got some got some dirty takeaway pizzas along the way and some collapsed 30 miles out of town by a phone booth and had to get his wife to come pick him up. And that was, that was the beginning of his adventure, of his adventure running. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I heard of him and I didn't know, I didn't know that story. I heard about, I read about one of his books, Ultramarathon Man, about his, um, his run across. Was it the, um, one of the trails in America? Um, but yeah, no, I, I wasn't that crazy, but certainly in my head, I was like, okay, I hate running in the heat. I hate running in sand whenever I've tried it on the beach chasing the kids. I'm really snake phobic. I, I, and yeah, this kind of is a crazy challenge. <laughs> okay. So I imagine quite a lot of people have some sort of mid, slight mid, perhaps midlife crisis type feeling, or they watch James Cracknell on the Discovery Channel. Um, and they think, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then they go to bed, they wake up the next morning and they see Sense. And instead they go to their running club and they run 10K like sensible people. <laughs> so what what was the, how did you actually commit to it? Because it's a hugely expensive race. It's a massive training effort commitment. So what was the action you took 
that took you to from just talking all the talk to fully being committed? I think that for me, a big part of the action is a, a big part of focusing on and, and starting the journey towards a goal is to focus. It is to understand everything there is to understand about what it is you're trying to achieve. So I immersed myself in the Marathon Day Saab. I watched every documentary. I read every blog. I followed every person that I knew that had done it. Um, both amateur and elite on on Facebook. I sent questions to people. I totally immersed myself in people's experiences of running the Marathon Day Saab. And alongside that, I emailed the UK organisers to find out for the year I was 40, when the registration would open and what I needed to do in order to secure a place, what the fund, how you would fund it, whether there was a payment. So, I, that is the first route. Everything, anything that I do that's an adventure, it's I want to almost taste it before I can fully commit to it. So that's that's what I do. I immerse myself in my adventures. Research, 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 and then yeah. so then the the um the process of actually um, doing it. How did you find training for that race? Because it's. It's very hard to train for the Sahara Desert, except for today, which is actually Sahara temperatures. But normally speaking, it's quite hard to train for the Marathon des Sables in rainy old England, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I um, I think the thing that people will know about me if they follow me on Instagram is that I absolutely believe in the power of coaching. So therefore, I'm a run coach and a personal trainer. And I knew that I wanted to be directed. I wanted to be coached by someone that had done the Marathon Day Sub before. So part of the process of focusing was to find a coach that had done it before. So I was coached by Elizabeth Barnes, who'd won it a couple of times. So she was my coach. And um, under her fantastic guidance, I uh, trained for two years. I trained the majority in the UK. I went to training camp in Lanzarote. I trained on the Cotswold Way, if I'm being honest with you. I trained a lot up, down, rocky terrain. Um, and for the heat training aspect of it, I did heat training at the University of Gloucestershire. Um, and, you know, wow. it, 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 it took a lot of discipline and consistency. But I had a plan and I knew that I wanted to not just compete, sorry, not just complete, I wanted to compete in the Marathon Day Saab. Well, you very, I did the Marathon Day Saab, I've got my race number up here above my desk actually, um, in 2008 and you very much put to shame my elite training regime which was running around Richmond Park in London wearing a bin bag um, and a rucksack <laughs> full of all, all my DIY tools and then um, St James's Park in central London's got the sandy bit where the horses, yeah. the horse guards do their thing. So run, running around there. But uh, yeah, you very much put me to shame with that no, mission you went on. Everyone does it in a different way, you yeah. know. I I just am the type of person that I I don't like too many surprises. And so therefore I wanted to be tutored by someone that had been there, done that, got the T-shirt and and that understood what my life was like as a mother of four as well and managing my business and so training had to fit into my life not my life fit into training so that meant a lot of early mornings I mean we're talking like 4am starts in order to get the runs done so I could get home and get the kids up and and I just yeah I I 
I I had the goal in my head and I knew that I did not want, I couldn't afford to break myself in the Sahara because I have a family that need me. Um, so I did everything I could to be as mentally strong and physically strong, get into the start line as I could. And what did your family think of you spending all of this time out selfishly running rather than being at home? My family, like, my, they know that my running manages my mental health. So it's, it's because, as I said to you, I, you know, my children are my number one priority. And a lot of the stuff that I do, um, I do as a way to be the best version of myself that I can be. So therefore, me getting up at silly o'clock in the morning to go and do a four-hour training run at the weekend so that I can be back by 8 a.m. And, and get them up and give them breakfast and we can go out and have a family day is how I manage my own uh, selfish thoughts about, you know, being a mother and going out and doing this um, and how I think I justify to them that I can still do this and I can still be your mum and do the things that you want to do as well because... Because, you know, there's a lot of, especially females, especially mothers that go out and train, you know, there's one camp that's like, oh, this is great. But then there's another camp that we fight against, which is, well, it's selfish. You know, you're taking time away from the family, etc. And I think that, that that's something that we deal with as amateur and elite athletes. But I think that if you spoke to the majority of families and friends of people like us, that they'd agree that actually we are we are the better version of ourselves when we are able to facilitate our lives around being able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I agree entirely with all of that. So you went off to run this epic 250-kilometre race with blisters and sand dunes and um, water rationing and all the struggles of that. When, when When you went to the desert, did you take a luxury item with you? I took a... pictures so my children had drawn I asked them to draw me pictures with little messages and I took um some laminated photographs as well those were my luxury items a because they were light because as you know Alistair you don't want to be adding weight to that rucksack um and b I wanted I wanted to be able to see them and I wanted to be able to see messages from them that I hadn't seen before that I knew that I would need and I knew that I would need to draw on that resource in the absence of being able to speak to them and say, I'm really struggling and tell me something nice that you've done today. And and they were my that was my luxury, they were my luxury items. They were the things that after the end of the day I would go, I would rehydrate, I would eat, I would look after my feet. And before I fell asleep, I would just look at those messages and those photos and remember the massive reason that I was doing this, which was to show my children that if you want something and you put the time and effort into working for it, that you can achieve your dreams. That's lovely. Um, What was harder than you imagined about the MDS and what was easier than you imagined? (gasps) Oh, my God. I tell you, what was harder than imagined about the MDS was running up sand dunes without poles. Uh, That was a silly decision that I made. I was like, no, I'm not going to take poles. I'm not, I don't need them. Um, I think the easier thing, the easiest thing was um, dealing with the heat. Ah, yeah. That's interesting. 
Yeah. I um I I had a rule when I did it which was never run anything that was uphill. Yeah. And never run anything that was soft sand. And I had to put these rules on myself because otherwise I'd get a bit too carried away. So so I had very strict rule if it's sand or uphill, I I walk and then I try and leg it on the rest. Um I found the heat hard being a pasty tall <laughs> heavy white guy there are all these scrawny little brown-skinned moroccans and spaniards and french people being very cavalier with their water rations sort of pouring yeah. over their heads and i was uh, really struggling with that i'm sort of lick their shirts to get some extra uh, droplets yeah, yeah i mean i mean obviously i'm i'm mixed race and um but i've done a lot of heat training and and yeah, it wasn't, for me, the heat wasn't a problem. Um, I never suffered with not having enough water. I took my salt tablets as I was directed religiously. But yeah, the big mistake I made is that I, those sand dunes, getting up to my knees in the sand and trying to claw my way out, I found that absolutely horrendous. And when I do the MDS again, because I want to do it again one, one day, I will be taking poles with baskets. <laughs> Very wise. So you you train, you work for years. This is a big part of your 40th uh, yeah. year. You know, it's a big thing in your life. You get to the end, you get that medal. Did that then bring you ever-fulfilling satisfaction and happiness? I hoped it would. And it did. It did for two hours. Two Why hours? Yeah. Oh, you were lucky. Uh, it did for two hours, you know, to sit in the bivouac, waiting for my tent mates to come back, to look at this medal, to have had that massive hug from Patrick Bauer, to have gone through the process of, oh my God, I've just finished the Marathon Day Sub, this thing I've been training for. There's so many emotions. But then there was a massive, and what now? Where do I go now? And I went into, after getting home, I went into a massive ultramarathon depression that lasted for a good month until my best friend had to sit me down and have a word with me. Because it's, yeah, once you've, once you've achieved what seems the impossible, you know, kind of, you know, the question was, well, where do I go from here? You know, how do I top that? Um, luckily, I have found a lot of things that, that, can challenge me but it was it was an incredibly dark time because you've been training for so many years it's been your focus and suddenly you achieve and it's great but you're like what now what now yeah yeah that's that sounds pretty much sums up the last 20 years of my life so your good friend sat down with you and had a word what what words of wisdom did your friend say when you'd been moping around for a month she said I love you. This state that you're in at the moment does nothing for you. What do you need? And I said, and, and it was, those are the words I need. I said, I need a challenge. And she said, what do you think that looks like? And I'd been thinking about the mountains for a while, a, a, a while I had a couple of friends who'd done UTMB and Lavaredo and Trans, Transvolcania. And, and I was like, I kind of think I would like to try mountain running. <laughs> and she was like, right, let's get online. Let's find, let's find some races. And, and it took somebody that knows me and knows that I need that adventure. I need that goal. I need that challenge to bring me out 
of this low that I was in because I didn't know that I needed that. I was like, no, I need a rest is what I need. I just need a, I need a, and actually what I, I need goals in my life. It's really, they're really important for me. For this person, she needs to be, she needs to be working towards goals. But it's the problem with um, solving that problem by signing up for it mountain running does that not just are you not just kicking the can down the line uh, and chasing ever greater highs ever greater hits you've you've given think, up alcohol and moved on to the uh, the addictive hits of running up mountains yeah I, I think maybe you know I don't know that I'm ever gonna find and I was having this conversation with a friend earlier you know I think that you know you're as as, as you're always looking for that you're looking for that kind of that that pinnacle of the moment where you're like I've done it I've ticked the box I'm happy I'm fulfilled in the 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 physical challenge that I've set myself I'll go and become the world's best crocheter now or knitter or whatever if I'm being really honest with you Alistair I don't know that I I don't know that I'll ever achieve that because really kind of from what I've experienced in my life you know for me I am constantly striving. I'm co- I'm constantly looking to to really understand where the boundary is for me physically, mentally. And I believe that that's kind of part of my life's work. I believe we're all here for a specific purpose. And I'll know it when I get there. And I think I'm I'm closing in on it because mountain running and mountain racing is a different kettle of fish. Different kettle of fish. Right. Do you do you think um perhaps you're just continually trying to prove yourself because you grew up as a, a black kid in a white town? I think that there's a lot that goes in hand in hand with having to endure rural racism from as early as you can remember through your childhood, through your teenage years, and then as an adult from a subtle microaggression perspective. I think that there's, you can't help but, you know, I, I I know that my anxiety and bouts of depression come from being racially, verbally and physically targeted for a vast, vast majority of my life. Um, so therefore there is as a, as a woman, as a mixed race woman living in a community, a rural community of which there is a very, very small proportion of black people. I think there's always going to be an element of me that believes I could, I have to prove my existence because that is what we are asked to do. It's why, you know, it's you're an oddity. It's that you, why are you here? It's what, what do you bring, you know, why should we be, why should we listen to you? Why should you be our, you know, fright? all of these things that poke and prod our self-esteem, um, racism that pokes and prods our self-esteem as we're growing up and developing our personalities. I absolutely think that a big part of the reason that I'm the way I am is having to endure racism. So what small, um, what microaggressions do you encounter regularly in the in the running community? I think that it's um, you know I'm I remember I'm mixed race so I'm light skinned um, and I think that it's it's 
But sorry, this given that this is a podcast, I'll describe you. I'll describe you, which is probably a total di- recipe for causing all sorts of offence. But to me, you look like a lightish-skinned black woman. Yeah. And uh, I've seen a picture on the internet. You've got good hair. You've Big got hair. strong yeah. hair. So yeah. you you definitely look considerably blacker than me who is looking yeah. at the screen now is looking incredibly pink what yeah, quite <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so so visually i'd say if i was if i saw you in the street i would think you were a black woman yeah yeah and this is and this is what i this is what i say and this is what i this is what i try and explain it's kind of where i live there are there was no one and today there are probably three people that look like me so i grew up in a town where no one looked like me so therefore i was a target so when it comes to the running community, um, Black Trail Runners, which is a, a community group and a campaigning group that I'm a co-founder of, you know, we want to increase the engagement and the participation of Black people in trail running because a sport that is seen as being inclusive and which a lot of the negative kind of feedback that we've had since we've kind of gone out there and and published an open letter to race directors and organizers has been you know our sport is inclusive our sport is inclusive well as a white person it's easy to say that your sport is inclusive because for you as a white privileged person it is inclusive but for us there are issues around access to trails 97% of the black population are have been urbanized so they're from cities and that comes from going back to Windrush and being people being brought over and having to rebuild etc cetera, etc cetera. um also you know you go half an hour a couple of our founders of black trail runners live in London you go half an hour outside London it's predominantly white being a black person in the countryside no matter how you much you want to dress it up, you are seen as an oddity. I was out with my friends at the weekend, Alastair. We were, we were walking on the Cotswold Way down to an old mansion. We were walking up a hill and we were like, okay, let's listen to some music. Let, you know, let's, let's kind of, you know, get us up the hill. So, you know, a friend had a little kind of portable stereo in his back. We're putting on some music, you know. The looks, the looks... It, it's not somebody all out calling you the N-word or anything like that. The, 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 the microaggressions, the looks, the head nod, as in, that's not what we do here. That's not, <laughs> that's not how you act in the countryside, you people. It's, you, you know, living with it day in, day out, you become very sensitive to when, as a mixed race, black you know racialized as black trail runner when i'm running on a trail at seven in the morning or even noon as i was on saturday on the way running past a family and then physically physically almost jump out of your way as if you're going to somehow try and rob their drink or you know these are these are slights these are microaggressions that when you live with this day in day out you start thinking to yourself Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe this isn't a safe space for me. You know, and 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 this is this is my lived experience as a as a, as a light-skinned black person. My friends, etc. One of our co-founders was running in here near Harrow and got to the top of the hill and there was a black guy that was being stopped and searched. And you know, the only reason that my <laughs> on top of a hill. Yeah. 
The only reason my friend wasn't being... So, obviously, they had ve- vehicular access. But the only reason my friend wasn't is because he was in running gear. That's what... That's the only... Like, these are not safe spaces. We do not feel they're safe spaces. So there's loads of conversation to be had around access. And the other thing is, you can't be what you can't see, you know? You go to the Tesco's or any supermarket, let's not play favouritism, look on the news shelf. You do not see black ultra runners. You do not see black runners on the covers of those magazines. This has been a big issue. And it's something that I took up with a massive magazine in terms of us holding them to account. And Runners World. Yeah. And they're working on it. They, you know, we, we've had open and honest and frank conversations. But all I wanted to see as a as a black girl growing up was someone that looked like me, just someone, whether I saw it in my street, my town, on the telly, in magazines that I read. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up reading Miz and, and Looking and Smash Hits. and Look and out for looking. Look out for looking, you know. And... I didn't, you know, in in those magazines where, you know, people were being educated about girl things, like there there wasn't anyone that I could identify with. And this is a big part of the problem in terms of representation of, of, of black people in trail running. So much work needs to be done. And and that's part of part of my journey, part of my mission and the mission of black trail runners is is to have those uncomfortable conversations about why. Do black people not feel as though trails are as accessible or trail running is as inclusive as it is being made to believe? Yeah, I think the interesting thing you said, well, you said many interesting things there, but the last thing you said, because I've got very short memory span, but the last thing you said that was interesting there was that it, oh gosh, I've even forgotten that already, <laughs> but it was along the lines of um, <laughs> it's, we, 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 the running community, assumes that it's all inclusive because they're all like me sort of white middle-class men like yeah of course yeah. everyone's welcome everyone's yeah. welcome come on join in and everyone or i would say the vast 99 percent people would very much yeah come along and join in but as you say you can't you you can't be what you can't see so the issue is getting no. more people out there in the first place and yeah. the difficulty it with is, that it's about is that, that work at grass yeah, but the difficulty with that is that if the vast majority of uh, black people live in urban areas, what can we do to get them to even begin to know that something cool like trail running exists? That's something I really struggle with. So, for example, with my blog, my podcast, how can I tell anyone who would never think to Google, ooh, let's Google adventure running podcast? How can, how can we reach people who've never even considered trail running? It's about looking at it from grassroots level up and the top down. So it's about reaching out to community groups. It's about it's about going out as brands and organisations and influencers and really understanding further what we're saying on, and what they say are some of the key issues around access. It's about safe space. It's about um, skills. So as a, as a trail runner, I know that, I need to, if I'm going out on the trails, where am I going? How can I ensure I'm safe? What do I wear? What do I carry? 
What do I drink? You know, if I'm going to be, it's these things, we call them skills or knowledge, is all part of it. So you've got to, re- you've got to be willing to reach out at that grass, that grass roots level, community groups, run crews, et cetera, et cetera. The brands that are out there, you know, the the massive brands of this world who, again, in their marketing and their representation, do not showcase black athletes. Or maybe they've started to do that or black amateur athletes. Maybe they've started to do that since BLM. But it's them asking internally, why do we believe that it's okay not to have black people represented within our marketing. And it's about looking internally at their own organizations, looking at their board, looking at their senior management and saying, where are the, like, where are the black people? Because without black people in these organizations at that decision-making level, the, the situation's not going to change because a brand's not going to have that understanding of what it is to be a black person that might want to try trail running and therefore where that brand's marketing money can be spent. So you're looking representation from top down. You're looking at grassroots access from gra- from that level, the, the bottom up. And in the middle, you've got what do I need to understand about trail running in order to feel equipped, confident and safe in doing that. And that's something that Black Trail Runners, our community, are working with brands to ask the questions about, to ask uncomfortable questions and have uncomfortable conversations, working at grassroots level, reaching out to those community groups, reaching out to people that are joining our community and saying, look, you know, we're putting on a series, this year we'll be putting on a series of social distance safe runs where the the group can come together can be led we can share lived experience we can share that skills and knowledge we can get the representation because together we are stronger you know um and that's 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 the work that's the work do you find it um that was that was a very um very thorough and uh articulate answer um very very thorough um, but do you find it exhausting doing all this explaining rather than just being able to go for a run? Um, no, I don't, because it's not just about me. It's not just about me going for a run. You know, I have a responsibility. The moment that I stood up at the BLM protest in Stroud in June and said, the, the statement that, you know, a video that went viral saying Stroud is racist. The moment I decided to do that and start talking about my lived experience, I became responsible for playing a part in making change. Um, words are not enough. You know, I, you know, it, they're just, they're not enough. It's action. So therefore we had the black squares on the Tuesday and that's, that was all well and good. But, you know, what we found is that they were just words. A lot of the stuff were just words. There has to be action. There has to be action that will facilitate change. And, you know, I always, and I say to my, I said to my children, you know, when I'm in my, on my dying bed, you know, and someone says to me, do you believe that you have done with your life that which is, you know, will be your legacy or whatever? And, at the moment, I feel the path I'm on, absolutely, yes, because it's not about me just going for a run. What I want to enable is that any Black person would feel safe, have the access, have the skills and the representation to be inspired 
to use the trails because for me, trail running is a form of mental health management. It helps me to manage the trauma of the racism that I've encountered. And I know that it does that for my black friends who trail run too. And I want that for every black person. I want that. And I will not rest until we've, we've achieved change. Oh, well, Sabrina, I think that's a perfect uh, note for us to end on. Uh, you've spoken extremely eloquently and uh, you've taught me a lot as well. So I think you're doing a brilliant job of not only enjoying running, but also living adventurously w- with now some real purpose and focus in what you're doing as well so thanks so much for giving up your evening to chat to me and uh, good luck with the uh, chasing of demons and the search <laughs> for uh, the day when you can sit there with your slippers and retire content <laughs> so thanks so much for talking to me sabrina thank you i hope you've enjoyed this episode of living adventurously if you did please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.